in the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasure of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give you prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for the people of God. Haggai is a minor prophet. Now, you may remember when we talked about Habakkuk a few weeks ago, or Joel, that they too were put in that category of minor prophets. Not because what they have to say is not important, but because the length of what they said is shorter than the major prophets. So the 12 minor prophets are all shorter books. We have a few much longer books we consider the major prophets. But Haggai, a little different than some of the prophets, gives some very specifics about who's in charge and when he's writing and what month and what day. So our biblical scholars that study all of this tell us that Haggai was writing in 520 B.C. or B.C.E. before the Common Era. He is writing to his people that I remind you have been conquered by the Babylonians some 70 years before. They have overrun Jerusalem and conquered them. They've taken leaders and some of their treasure back to Babylon. But by the time Haggai writes, their fortunes have turned as well. And Cyrus of Persia has taken over the Babylonians and said to these people in exile, you can go back home. If you would like, you can go back to Jerusalem. And in fact, Cyrus encourages them not only to go back, but to rebuild their nation, to rebuild the temple. Well, they went back home. They have been back home now for some 20 years, but nothing much has happened to the temple. It still lies in ruins. Haggai has a message for them. It is time to rebuild the temple. Thus says the Lord, Haggai says, God is speaking to me and telling me to tell you it's time for us to get to work and rebuild the temple. Since Haggai dates what he's writing, we can see in chapter 1 when he began. 
And he fires them up and they start. But then what we read today, the beginning, the very end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, we realize the people that he had inspired just a month later now are already lagging. And so his message to them is, come on, buck up. We can do this. Let's get this work done. And he reminds them that he's speaking for the Lord. That God is calling them to take this up. He tells all the people to take courage. That they can do this. Did you notice he says this three times? He says to the governor, take courage. He says to the high priest, take courage. And then he says to all the people, take courage. Step up. We can do this. See if you can hear what he's saying. I'm going to read to you the last part of verse 4 and through verse 5. He says, Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. Can you hear his encouragement saying to them, we can do this. Don't give up so soon. We can do this because God is with us and God is leading us into the future. This is a refrain familiar to Christians. You can do hard things because God is with you. This is one of the repeated themes through our life together of faith. As I was reading through this and preparing the sermon, it made me think of so many of our affirmations of faith that are in the back of our hymnal where we affirm this same kind of theme. We have the affirmation number 883, which is a statement of faith of the United Church of Canada of which the Methodists are a part. This will probably sound familiar to many of you. It begins like this. We are not alone. We live in God's world. Then it talks about all the ways that God is at work in the world. Then it finishes like this. In life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. Amen. But it's not just in our affirmations of faith. You can hear it in the Gospels as Jesus teaches and the Gospel writers tell us about His life. He often goes apart for times of prayer to talk with God, to listen for God. In the Gospel of John, He says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. You hear the theme throughout these Gospels that Jesus and God are so tightly connected that all that... Jesus is revealing all he's saying. The way he treats people, the way he interacts, is all because God is at work in him and through him. But you not only hear it in the Gospels, we hear it in so many of the early letters written as the early Christians are organizing themselves into groups, into churches. Perhaps the most poignant is when Paul's writing to those Christians in Rome and he's talking about suffering and how they're experiencing suffering, how he's experiencing suffering. But then he says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, 
who is against us? And it's not that nobody is against them. Oh, yes, there are authorities against them. But Paul is saying, once you recognize that God is for you, all else pales in comparison because you know you can count on God. This has become such a central theme that it's also been turned into one of our affirmations of faith. Another one is 887. They use this eighth chapter of the letter Paul wrote to these Romans where he's talking about this suffering and how God is for us. And then they take one of his verses and give it to the leader where the leader says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then for the people's response, they take the next several verses that Paul writes and the people respond, No, no, in all things we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For we are sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God is what Christians affirm. Haggai's trying to say the same kind of thing to his people. Take courage, he says, because God is with us. You can count on God to lead us forward. Remember, he's the one who's delivered us from Egypt. He's the one who's brought us back from Babylon. We can count on him, but he's calling on us now to work to do our part, take courage, he says. But his people respond a little bit, but then they fall away. They begin to lag in their efforts. He tells us in chapter 1, he's got them fired up, but then he realizes before very long they're getting distracted. And he says why. He says they are distracted by each working on their own house while neglecting God's house. That they're all so busy working on their own stuff that they have forgotten about the community. They've forgotten about the importance of God and the importance of coming together to worship God. See if you can hear that in verse 3 as he's speaking to them. He says, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? In other words, because it's been destroyed, you think it's of no import. You think it's no longer important. But Haggai has a very different sense of that. He says God is saying to them a very different message. But he says you've forgotten God. You've forgotten all the things God has done. You've forgotten that the houses you have been able to build are because God has provided you the resources. You've forgotten that if you have food on your table and something to drink, it's because God has provided for you. You cannot forget the giver of all these good gifts, Haggai says. He says it's time to thank God 
It's time to get back to worshiping God. It's time to give back to God. It is time to worship God and put God at the center of your life. He calls all the people to reorganize and refocus and reprioritize to make sure God is at the center of what they're doing. And in this case, that means rebuild the temple. It's our place of worship. It's where we gather. It's the place where we go to meet God. It's time for us to rebuild the temple. It sounds similar to me to some of Jesus' teaching in terms of what it means to have our lives in the right order. In Matthew chapter 6, we have the Sermon on the Mount, the great teaching Jesus does. I'm going to read a portion of that to you. See if it sounds similar to what Haggai teaches. I'm going to read it to you out of the message translation that's come out more recently. Now, Jesus is talking to people gathered, and he says, Don't hoard treasure down here where it is eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be and end up being. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, care less in the care of God. And you count far more to God than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The ten best-dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think God will attend to you and take pride in you? And don't you think God will do His best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way God works fuss over all these other things, but you know both God and how God works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all of your everyday human concerns will be met. 
give your entire attention to what God is doing now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever things, whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Can you hear God's care and direction as good news? Can you hear this teaching of Jesus as good news for your life, as deep wisdom in terms of how you live your life? Oh, it may cause you to refocus. You may have to shift some priorities. But Jesus is saying, you can do this because God is with you. You can have this abundant life if you will follow God because God will lead you because God is with us. Haggai is saying the same thing, and then he concludes by saying to his people, the splendor to come shall be greater than the splendor we have known. Even though it doesn't look like it now, he's saying you may have a memory of how great it was, but because God is with us, if we get to work, it's going to be even greater in the future because he understands we're not just rebuilding the temple, that if they do this, they'll be rebuilding the people of God. They'll be reestablishing the covenant with God. There'll be a resurgence of vital faith among them as they work together to rebuild God's house. Haggai says it's time for us to go to work, to do our part. And he says any time you do that, your future is going to be brighter than you can imagine. It's going to be brighter than you can see. Any time that you move toward God, things are going to get better. Even if your candidate didn't win the election. Because our trust is in the Lord. Amen. And thanks be to God.